Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. From a young child who witnessed the Cuyahoga River burning to a pioneer in connecting tree ring data to climate change, Dr. Lisa Gromlich has become a powerful voice in climate change communication, adaptation, and solutions. She will take us through what we've learned at COP26 and from the latest IPCC report and give us a preview of what's to come at this year's fall meeting uh, I'm sorry. Let me let me let me start that over because that fall meeting has happened <laughs> already. Okay. Yes, I want to make they probably when these notes were written they it, it hadn't happened yet. So let me yeah. And in fact, that's the case because I know who wrote them. All right. So let me do that one more time. Three, two, one. From a young child who witnessed the Cuyahoga River burning to a pioneer in connecting tree ring data to climate change, Dr. Lisa Gromling has become a powerful voice in climate change communication, adaptation, and solutions. She will take us through what we learned at COP26 and from the latest IPCC report and give us a summary of what came at the big fall American Geophysical Union meeting, which was themed science is society. Dr. Gromlet, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really an honor to talk to you. I've, I've followed your career and I'm very aware of the contributions you've made. We actually have a standard question that we ask every single guest on the podcast, and it's typically, how did you become a weather geek? But first of all, you're a paleoclimatologist, a geologist, and an atmospheric scientist, so I'm not sure which of those to ask. How did you become such a geoscience geek, I should say? Well, I actually think it goes way back. And I think I am I think I am a weather geek. I think I'm a very special kind of weather geek. And I'll tell you why. When I was young, I lived very close to my grandparents' farm in Northwestern Ohio. And it was an 80-acre farm, rich farmland. And my grandfather would wake me early in the morning to go out and check the crops. He was he wasn't one of those kind of jolly grandfathers that tells a lot of jokes. He hardly spoke, actually. And um, we'd walk out into the fields and he would look at the plants and look at the soil. And in good years, you know, I could sense as a young child that there was a sense of ease. But if there was drought or these were these thick clay soils that if there was any excess of rain, there would be just terrible flooding and water logging. And he would be touching the leaves of the plants and kind of looking up at the sky and looking at the horizon. And you know, this was before he had really good weather forecasts. So Marshall, what when I thought about the weather, I thought about crops. I thought about people. I thought about my grandfather's really, you know, I don't think we would have used the word back then, but, you know, his anxiety about was the farm going to be okay? And then by by extension, you know, were we going to be okay? Um, this was a man who had lived through the Dust Bowl. So, you know, it was real for him. So I, I'm kind of, you can sort of sense a smile in my face. 
I feel like it was such a gift because to me, he started to put the earth system together for me. Weather wasn't just whether I was going to have a good day out on the playground. Weather was linked to, you know, what we now call the biosphere and plant life and crop productivity and our ability to feed the world. And, and these ideas that we now deal with as earth system scientists were implanted in me at a very early age. So do I, do I qualify? Do I get to be a weather oh, geek? Oh, we are. Not? We have given you the mantra. You are definitely <laughs> a weather geek. And you know, it's interesting as I listen to your, your discussion, I think about my, my time at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. You know, I, my, my PhD is in meteorology, but my career at NASA Goddard, I really became an earth system scientist as well, because as you just noted, uh, things are connected, the atmosphere, the oceans, the biosphere, the cryosphere, and so forth. And so it seemed that you had an early appreciation for that. Let me give the listeners a little bit of your background now that we've gotten into the conversation. Uh, Dr. Gromlich is the president, is a president-elect or current president? I, I, I'm the former president, president of AMS. And so I don't president know President-elect. You are the and president. I've got another year before I step into those big shoes. So yeah, absolutely. I, I got my training wheels on. Uh, yeah, I, I remember those days doing, going through the process at AMS as well. Uh, so she's the president-elect of the American Geophysical Union, or the AGU. She's a professor in the School of Environmental and Forest Sciences at University of Washington and Dean Emeritus of the College of the Environment at the University of Washington. Uh, so she's got some really strong credentials in many areas. She was the director of the Mountain Research Center and executive director of the Big Sky Institute at Montana State University. And there are many other things that I'd like to share as we go through the podcast. Uh, uh, she began her career as an assistant professor of geography at UCLA, and that's interesting to me, given that I am actually uh, a professor in the Department of Geography at the University of Georgia, and I, I know some really good folks there at UCLA, like Marilyn Raphael, our mutual colleague, I'm sure you know. Yeah, exactly. I want to get into this discussion. I mean, you mentioned a little bit about your childhood in Ohio. Uh, Many people know you, I believe, for many things, but tree ring research is one of them. Tell us a little bit about your transition or your sort of sort of anchoring as one of the world's top tree ring experts at the University of Arizona, I guess, initially is where some of your work, but perhaps even before that. But just tell us how you really sort of made your mark in tree ring. Well, I'm going to tell you why I decided to study tree rings, because it was a real pivot point in my graduate career. I thought I wanted to be a tropical ecologist. And you know, that, there was a whole lot of action there. That was what all the cool kids were doing. You know, big questions in ecological evolution and things like that. And I was taking a class in a geography department from a climatologist. And we were just talking about climatology. It was 1977. And you're enough of a weather geek. You probably remember that as the year in which there was a really intense, severe, extensive coat, um, drought on the West Coast. It went from the U.S.-Mexico border all the way up to the U.S.-Canada border. You know, for the first time ever, people in California, you know, had restrictions on when they could water their lawns or wash their cars. And there was all this stuff about when you flush the toilet and when you didn't flush the toilet. But so like all of a sudden drought was real. And, you know, we were discussing this in class and discussing how there really hadn't been a drought like this since the 1930s, where, you know, society really had to, to adjust. And to this day, 
I will never forget what he said, which is he looked at the class and he said, you know, we don't really know if this is climate change or natural variability. And Marshall, I can remember the exact chair in the exact room where I was sitting when I heard those words, because recall, you know, I'm the granddaughter of that farmer. And this was a big question for me. And, you know, the fact that he kind of calmly stated it, 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 inside I was quite animated, shall we say. And after I calmed down a couple of days later, I went into him and I said, I, you know, are you sure you like, you know, in this field of climatology, you can't tell me if that drought is climate change or not? And he went on to explain, you know, particularly, you know, in the 70s, if you think about our instrumental climate records, you know, a lot of them kicked in after World War II. You know, maybe we had 20, 25 years of some really strong coverage on this and and attribution of extreme events. And I hope we can actually get back to that in a, a moment. It's a really tricky thing when things don't happen very often. And he looked at me and he says, well, you know, you know something about biology. He says, you might be interested in tree rings because they are a way we can extend climate records back in time and get the data we need to understand quote unquote natural variability. You know, are there cycles and in temperature and be able to, to answer that question? So <laughs> that was 1977. And Marshall, that became that became my goal. It was like, I'm gonna do this. And, you know, as a young graduate student, you know, you kind of dig in where you are. And I went to the University of Washington where there had not been tree ring work done before. And people had kind of said, oh, it's going to be kind of hard. And that's the kind of words I love, you know, just like, okay, you tell me it's going to be hard and sign me up. Bring it and, on, um, right. And we developed some long-term records of temperature. But about that time, I started to realize, wait a minute, we're trying to take the temperature of the planet. We're not just trying to take the temperature of my proverbial backyard. And so we, I became part of a movement among paleoclimatologists, not here in the U, just here in the US, but around the world, trying to put together tree ring records, records of temperature from corals, other cave deposits, so that we could say to the public, yes, the temperatures in the last couple of decades are the warmest that we've had in the last thousand years. And you'll tell that was one of the IPC findings, you know, like a decade or so ago. And until, Marshall, I felt like this was not just a scientific question, but a, a big question of ethics. If I was going to stand in front of the public as a scientist, as a member of a public university and say, we need to take this seriously. We need to change policies. We need to change practices. We need to, to address climate change. I needed to be sure that we were looking at something that was human caused. And, you know, one of the things I love about paleoclimate is, um, I like to say it's one of the teamiest of team sciences. Um, you, you don't do this by yourself. And the fact that we could put together that kind of international collaboration was a true highlight of my career. Yeah, this is really amazing. I'm talking with Dr. Lisa Gromlich from University of Washington. Amazing, amazing sort of context. I, I think it's interesting for our listeners because oftentimes we have experts on this podcast 
And we kind of just dive right in, but I really appreciated sort of the context for how you came to want to study what you study. And I think it's important. Uh, she talked about these proxy records. And as a climate scientist myself, I often get, well, how do we know what our current temperature and climate is like relative to the past? And we certainly have uh, tree rings and we have coral, as you mentioned, and ice cores. I have a colleague here, Dave Perinchu, in my department at Georgia that looks at lake core sediments and little insects that are, uh, you know, locked away in those lake core sediments. And so we, we do have ways of understanding uh, past climate, and I think they're very credible and reliable ways as well. Now, one of the things that, you know, uh, my colleagues in the when they were preparing our productions notes, you had an inaugural you were the inaugural dean of the College of the Environment, which in itself, I guess, was a groundbreaking initiative at the University of Washington. Um, you know, I'm all over the place here because I want to, before we get into the IPCC and the COP26, I just want people to understand sort of your role in really building this sort of important sort of initiative. Uh, why was that such an important step for you in your career to become this inaugural dean? Well, throughout my career, I was always frustrated by the silos of higher education. And I was starting to study climate change. And I was actually had some early NASA money to teach about climate change. And we couldn't figure out at the University of Arizona at the time, where did that where did that course belong? You know, if carbon's in the atmosphere, it's in atmospheric sciences. If it's in, you know, fossil fuel deposits, it's geology owns it, but maybe engineering has something to do with it. If it's in um, the biosphere, if it's in plants, it's in the biology department. But if it's in the soils, it's in the soils department. And if you're going to do something about it, you've got to have your economists and social scientists in. And so, boy, very early on, I thought this problem that I'm so intensely interested in is something that... Um, First of all, it's urgent. It's all hands on deck. And those hands that are on deck are in all sorts of places around the university. So I started to do a bit of a swimming upstream of saying, you know, yeah, there's these budget issues where we're supposed to be accountable to departments. and But can we just ignore those for the moment and um, all work together on this? And did that as a younger professor. And got better and better at making the case to, um, you know, was always kind of pushing that idea up to the provost and president level and getting them excited about that. Well, imagine my delight when I got word as an alumni of the University of Washington that the president and provost at the University of Washington said, gosh, you know, environment is a really important issue. And, you know, we're one of the top universities in this field, but everybody's all over. There were actually three different colleges where you could find environment. And they were like, kind of, what's up with that? And made the bold move and you're part of a university. It took years, a couple of years to actually do all of this, to put the earth sciences, the space sciences, the atmospheric sciences, ocean sciences, fishery sciences, forestry sciences, a marine lab, three ships, um, two working forests, an undergraduate program on the environment, all under one umbrella. And there were a couple of things that happened immediately. Um, the ability to collaborate 
across those silos. It was never terribly hard, but man, we could put it on steroids. We could get things going. But more importantly, we had a voice. And so we could speak to policy issues and we could create science communication training and strategies that move that science out into the public in ways that we never did before. Oh, I I failed to do a shout out to Washington Sea Grant. You know, this group of scholars whose job it is to do that, not just one-way translation of pushing the science out into the community, but getting community voices back into how it is that we prioritize what we do. Now, there were some turf battles and people that used to own parts of the university felt less empowered. The, um, you know, this is Washington State and the forest industry had real concerns that the College of Forest Resources had turned into a school of forest resources. And was that yet another way our region was backing away against working forestry? And in fact, it wasn't. And we, in the new college, made huge investments in getting forest-based biofuels you know, sort of up and running and you know, really looking, looking to the future. So it, it is the biggest college of the environment in the country. But as my former provost used to say, being big isn't what's important here. It's doing what matters and communicating that. And she always reminded me of that. And I kept those words, you know, in mind as I as I moved forward. And it was, if any of your listeners are scientists that think about leadership in higher education, and sometimes we always talk about that as going to the dark side, that it's like a bad thing to do. You know, you do it when you don't have any more ideas about research. It challenged me as a scientist to think about this system in at a really large scale and in a very comprehensive way and to assemble the people that could not just solve the problems, but identify the problems. And it was vastly challenging and deeply rewarding. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Lisa Gromlich. And she, you've heard um, many of her credentials and a few other things that I wanted to mention. She began, I mentioned that she began her career as an assistant professor at UCLA. She studied botany at University of Wisconsin with a graduate degree in geography. And she has testified on long-term climate variability before the U.S. House of Representatives Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming. So she's literally someone that the nation's leaders call upon for expertise. So let's, let's now talk about the IPCC report and COP26. Uh, you know, the recent IPCC report has started to come out. Uh, we know that it comes out in various phases. Uh, what kind of get, catches your attention 
uh, in the most recent IPCC report. I mean, I have to admit, I wrote an article in Forbes. I'm a senior contributor to Forbes and said, yes, this IPCC report's been saying what we've been saying as climate scientists and it's time to act and move forward. Um, but I guess my little article on sort of report fatigue was just my frustration at the time because I want action um, because we as scientists know what, what we've been saying. What catches your attention the most in the most recent IPCC report? And what are the ways forward from your lens? There are two things. First, the progress we made on attribution science. I'll go back to that in a second. And the degree, oh my goodness, Marshall, I'm with you. We've been through these, these IPCC reports again and again and again. And the communication strategies in that current report have become far more effective. But let's go to attribution science. So when you and I got going in this and we would talk about climate change, we'd be talking about warming in the Arctic and the loss of sea ice. And, and to be honest, I don't know about your experience, but in the moment, if I was with the public, you could see their, their eyes would light up and they would, would sense my cons deep, deep concern about how disruptive this was for the climate system, but but world's economies, et cetera. But it was real easy to like put it away because it was a couple of decades away. And for our sakes, it was the Arctic. It was, you know, we would use polar bears as this symbol of like what's going to happen. And most people had never met a polar bear and didn't really hope to meet one. So, you know, it wasn't something that was was sticky. I think the communication experts talk about, you know, it didn't people didn't think about it. Well, all of that has started to change. I mean, climate change is here now, particularly in the in the mid-latitudes, as they say, in you know, the United States, Western Europe, China, where we've had extreme event after extreme event after extreme event, to the point where not I can't think of anyone who doesn't have a friend or family member that hasn't been materially affected by these extreme events. So then, you know, particularly about four or five years ago, oh my gosh, they would ask the scientific community, well, is this, it goes back to that question, is this climate change or not? And we kind of bite our nails because it's complicated. And when a scientist says it's complicated, to another scientist, it implies, oh, they are a deep and thoughtful person. To a journalist, it sounds like they're passing the buck. And like they have their sneakers tied together. Like they don't know what they're talking about. So us saying it's complicated wasn't particularly satisfying. But where I am so proud of our community and our community of climate scientists has just grown so much and great leadership among our early career people they took it on and it's it's complicated because it involves a lot of data model iterations and sort of creating these sort of virtual worlds where we sort of run scenarios, kind of Monte Carlo type scenarios after scenarios trying to say like, okay, you know, is a hurricane of this magnitude happening twice in the Atlantic in 2017? Is that something that happens by chance or is that human impact? And the community came together with in very robust science coming in from multiple, multiple research groups to be able to do the quote unquote attribution science. 
that fingerprints of humans are on those events. So I can stand in front of the public once again and say, you know, those floods in Iowa, you know, those fires on the West Coast, you know, those Atlantic hurricanes that disrupted us, those are caused by climate change and they're going to get worse and we have got to lessen the amount of warming that we're doing. So for me, the IPCC report masterfully, and I'm going back to the communication, found a way of presenting that in various ways, graphically, sort of using ways in which, you know, in the end, it's about probability. And that's, um, unless you spend a lot of time in Las Vegas, that's not necessarily something that, you know. Right. <laughs> we, we know a little bit about it in weather, meteorology with the percent chance of rain and the cone of uncertainty. Exactly. But people still don't understand probability, though. It's, they struggle with it from a messaging standpoint. Yeah. So, you know, they did a darn good job. And they came up with this talking point of, code red for humanity and you and I could sit over coffee and say was that you know was that an extreme event and I mean or an extreme way of speaking about that and and I don't I don't think so I think it was a way in which in a single word we could express those of us that have worked on this for decades that we are now looking at a very serious situation that is a call to action. And it was a great lead up for COP26. Yeah, we're talking with uh, Dr. Lisa Gromlich, uh, president-elect of the American Geophysical Union, AGU. I'm going to talk to her a little bit about some things that AGU has done in the past, uh, recent, actually, in the past and in present times, that I think are provocative. But I want to stay with climate change, IPCC, and COP26 for a second. You often talk and you're known for talking about uh, loss and damage. What do you mean by that and why is it important? Well, I was honored to be named as a delegate to COP26 on behalf of the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. So he had he had a climate scientist in his delegation and he assigned me loss of damage. And, you know, I thought, I've been in this game for a long time. Like I thought I knew what that was about. And technically, you know, we all know those words, but that is a special term in the climate negotiations to refer to those kinds of damage that are irreparable and that money cannot create, cannot solve. It's about sea level rise, for low island, um, low elevation island states, where what happens when the burial place of the ancestors is now underwater? What happens when, um, as we're seeing right now throughout much of East Africa, a, a drought that is creating what is likely to be a permanent migration, people leaving their homeland because they can no longer grow crops there? What what are these damages that that are uninsurable? You know, you can't write a check and make these damages right. And so, going in, going into the COP experience, you know, I I understood that. But Marshall, to spend almost two weeks for eight to ten hours a day listening to stories of people 
from all over the world that are either currently experienced or are looking at these kind of very severe, either extreme events or chronic changes in climate that make their lives and the, the history and legacies of their community no longer viable was something that, that moved me greatly. Yeah. And it's something that I think in the richer countries of the world, we we're used to being able to mobilize around extreme events. And I'm not saying the loss of life and livelihoods is not extreme when we have, you know, the big floods here and the hurricanes, et cetera. But for example, the floods this year in Germany and in China resulted in, I think the final figures, actually the prime minister um, Mia Motley from Barbados gave a compelling speech at COP26 about this. And she quoted a figure of like 1% of GDP, gross domestic product, was lost that year in Germany because of those horrendous floods. Once again, acknowledging tremendous loss of life and um, infrastructure. In her own region, in the Caribbean, when you have the severe Atlantic hurricanes, they lost, they lose. 100%, 200% of GDP, 200%. They're still rebuilding after those 2017 um, storms. And so there's a way that the global South is not only feeling these effects, but but they there's not a way in which there's an easy, quick rebuild to those. So I have become very, very interested in talking to people about this because first of all they um i think we're starting to develop some climate literacy if i say adaptation or mitigation people know kind of what those thoughts generally mean you say loss and damage and it it, it, it you know it's for me as somebody that thought i knew a lot about this stuff yeah i didn't really understand how this is going to be this remains lurking in the hallways of the international climate negotiations and is going to be our hardest, I believe, our hardest challenge because it's about equity, it's about morality, it's about addressing the situation of people who have basically contributed nothing to the problem. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, I'm speaking with Dr. Lisa Gromlich, and just a powerful discussion that we were just listening to about loss and damage, loss and damage. And I think that this is really an interesting injection of narrative because, again, 20 years ago, when we talked about adaptation and mitigation, I think people would have been scratching their head. And I agree. I think now it's a part of the lexicon. I think people understand it. 
we've got to insert loss and damage, equity, environmental and climate justice and so forth into these discussions, something I'm very concerned about as well. I know you, you're involved involved in the, um, the Episcopalians for climate change. And you mentioned sort of how you came about going to COP26 as well. Uh, recently, the AGU, which you are the president-elect of, had its meeting, uh, I believe it was in New Orleans, I think. Uh, in, yes, uh, it was. Beautiful city. Lar lar largest earth and space science meeting in the world. Uh, I've been to many AGU in my time, didn't make it this past year. Uh, the theme of the meeting this year was science is society. Why is that such a powerful theme in your mind? Oh, my goodness, Marshall. AGU this year was so exciting because we truly rallied around this theme of science is society. And previously in AGU, we did what a lot of what I would call science that is abuse to society. We make weather forecasts. We make seismic forecasts. You know, we're, we partner with all sorts of emergency management organizations or, you know, food security organizations. But we didn't really invite society into our conversation. And we did in a very profound way this year. So, for example, we started the week with a keynote talk first thing up in the big conference hall by Dr. Robert Bullard, whose name I'm sure you're familiar with, the father of the environmental justice intellectual tradition, probably our best scholar on environmental racism. And he gave a masterful lecture to the assembled AGU, talking about how there's science questions that we don't always ask because we don't understand how the differential impacts of human activities are different for people of different races, ethnicities, classes. And of course, his, what, 18, 20 books, time and time again, sort of show us that. But what was interesting to me was in a more informal conversation after this very powerful lecture that, that people loved. I mean, standing ovation. Oh, he's, he's amazing. I'm sure he lit the room up immediately. Yeah. And it, it, people were just kind of reflecting like, well, why hadn't he spoken to AGU before? And he said to us, AGU wasn't ready to hear this. So what I believe we're seeing in AGU is a sea change in how we are interested in not just doing better and better predictions of what's going to happen, but how we actually listen to what questions are foremost on the, the minds of society, policymakers, planners, and sit at the table and deeply understand those. Another session that I got very excited about was one um, organized largely by geographers, which traditionally haven't necessarily had a strong presence. And it was about critical remote sensing. So HEU is very good at, you know, sort of organizing our community around developing 
oh, transparent and accessible um, sort of vehicles to share remotely sensed data. And this group of geographers were asking the question of who owns the data, who can really access it, and when and where are there ethics about, about making data accessible? So when we publish um, in, information about tropical deforestation, to what degree are those data um, falling into the hands and being used by narco-traffickers to disrupt um, communities? And is there a way in which communities, the the really fine, you know, incredibly um, detailed data that we are providing for this larger good of surviving, of preventing deforestation. This is their homes. This is their communities. Do we, do we have a right to share that without consulting them? And Marshall, we haven't asked that question before. And so what I get excited about is you know, AGU likes to say, well, you know, we've got these 60,000 paid members, and that makes us really big. We have over 100,000 people that feel that they're part of AGU. They publish in our journals, and they, they work with us. And that it's not just that our numbers are growing, but the kinds of voices that are at AGU is expanding, and they're asking hard questions. And it's it's an exciting moment to be in earth science, just because humans are part of the system and absolutely and yeah. it's showing up yeah, absolutely and i know that uh, as a part of agu uh, there have been announcements about investment strategies to be more inclusive in terms of businesses owned by people of color and women to remove investments linked to fossil fuels for the from the portfolio so these are examples of exactly what you're talking about sort of these sort of issues that 20 30 years ago would not have been on the agenda at an agu meeting or a council meeting or, or whatnot uh, and also agu strategies to focus on solution-based science so uh, we're getting near the end of the podcast there are a couple of other things i just can't let you go, go get away without the, you just your thoughts on um, you wrote about three coronavirus science lessons that give you hope for our planet's future. What are they? Um, first of all, the most important one was that we can do hard things. We made collective investments in public safety that have turned out to be chronically not quite hitting the mark, but at the same time, we have not done that before. And we've made personal sacrifices. We continue to make personal sacrifices and we make collective investments. And they have been, once again, not perfectly, but driven by science. All of a sudden we had this Dr. Fauci that we listened to day after day and hung on his words and waited, sometimes patiently, sometimes pretty impatiently, to understand the science of this pandemic. I'd like to to, to modify your question to say, what is the most important overarching oh, please do. question, you know, answer? And it is that we are not okay all okay until we are all okay. And 
we're learning that, that until globally, we have recovered to a place where we can live with these kinds of pandemic organisms because we are vaccinated and we understand the importance of testing and we're willing to change our behavior and the way in which we gather and and are do that nimbly until we all do that the whole, you know we will not be okay and when we think about the theme of this this conversation we've had about climate change we're not going to all be okay until everyone is who is being affected by climate change has their voices heard and their needs taken into a consideration as we navigate this collective future. Yeah, that's that's an amazing thought because I, I, I've written myself that we need an Operation Warp Speed effort for climate change in the same way that we saw with the pandemic. Uh, you said something very early on in this podcast that people in the past discussions would often see climate changes about the polar bears or about the year 2080. Attribution science tells us we're living climate change right now at every latitude, not just where the polar bears live. And so I think it's there's a sense of urgency. The, the last thing that I'd like to kind of um, sort of get your thoughts on, because I know you've been very active in the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. Uh, really trying to you know, push inclusivity there in terms of STEM. And, I, I, you know, my, my producers t- uh, found something that you said, or at least alluded to, where you said pride is not just about people in the arts and humanities. It's also nerdy scientists, too. Um, talk about sort of what you're trying to do uh, in terms of awareness there and raising it. So what in my own life I became aware of is that the degree to which I kept my sexual preference, you know, my identity as a lesbian hidden, you know, when you're when you're hiding something, it just absorbs a great amount of your mental energy and your creativity. And the degree to which I stayed in the closet, my science kind of stopped. It was, I was not um you know, this is such a collaborative kind of community. And, and when you're always taking a step back, you're, you're not a trustworthy collaborator. And I felt such urgency about doing this science. Well, I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to just, I, I've got to just change. And as an assistant professor made the decision like, okay, whatever. I may not get tenure because of this, but I'm certainly not doing very good science <laughs> otherwise. And so had my own lived experience that I was a better scientist because I was open. I started to look around. There were so many people. And it's, you know, it's not, it's gender identity, it's sexual preference, it's it's all the ways in which, um, you know, people's identities, we kind of tell them to sort of leave them at the doorway and don't bring this richness into their workplace. And so I became this huge proponent of saying to individuals, please, please, please bring your whole self here. But then as I, my career moved into higher and higher levels of administration is ensuring that inclusivity really was about celebrating the entirety of who we are as people. And I can remember initially working with this word inclusive and kind of seeing my university sort of define it as 
I always thought of it as kind of not being a jerk. You know, if somebody that was different than you showed up, you didn't insult them. I kind of thought, yeah, it's kind of a low bar here. Like, we're not going to be jerks. You know, like, didn't your mother tell you that, you know, way back when? And really thought of inclusivity as a much deeper celebration and embracing and taking the time to actually really understand the fullness that we bring together as a community. And when we do that, our work is stronger. It's more robust. It's more full of joy. I mean, this is hard work. And if we can't bring our best joy and fun and excitement and and selves to the work, we're going to burn out and the planet cannot afford to have us burn out. Wow, that's that's a powerful statement with uh, so much rich symbolism in it from multiple perspectives. Dr. Gromlich, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. But before we go, I have to do one thing. It doesn't involve you. It's time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Chris Fajaski. Chris is as described as a lightning Yoda. Uh, at least it's not a baby Yoda, but a lightning Yoda. He is a meteorologist and solutions manager who works for Vicella Group and is a part of the Lightning Safety Council. His most memorable weather event was a tornado outbreak in Southeast Michigan in July 1997. Chris, shout out to Chris. We've talked many times. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Dr. Gromley, thank you so much for this really insightful discussion on the podcast today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And you know, I love what you do. And it's so great to see this particular podcast in action. So shout out to all those geeks that get together and Got to talk about science. Thank you for the opportunity to share your expertise with them. And for the listeners, thank you for continuing to listen to Weather Geeks. Continue to follow us on social media, and we'll see you next time. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. One. Two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.